So we're starting a brand new series for Christmas called He Is, and we're going to look at four names, sort of nicknames, if you will, that Jesus was given in the book of Isaiah. And the passage that was read for us earlier this morning was Isaiah 9, verse 6 and 7, and particularly verse 6 is where these names come from, where Isaiah says, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now, almost all Bible translations that you're going to read, they're going to list those four names. But the reality is, in the ancient language, it's not four names. It's actually one really big sentence name which is actually really common in the ancient world that Israel grew up in, called the ancient Near East. Other cultures like Israel, they would give people these really long names. Because the purpose of names back then was a name was supposed to represent and symbolize what that person would be like. Now, obviously, it's really hard to like know when you've got just a newborn kid. Well, what are they going to be like? What name is right for them? It's kind of hard to figure out. So sometimes people in the ancient world, in the Bible, their name would get changed when they got older. They would change the name to be more fitting of who they actually were. And so Isaiah is prophesying these names to say, this is what Jesus is going to be like. When this person comes to earth, this is what he's going to live like. He's going to exemplify these kinds of attributes and characteristics because that's who God is. Now, for most of us, uh, the reason we probably have the name we do is maybe because your parents, if you were to ask your parents, hey, why'd you give me that name? Oh, we just liked it, like the way it sounded or something. Or maybe you have a, you have a family name. It's like, why is it a family name? Well, because your great, 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 great grandfather liked the name that sounded. So we just keep calling our kids by this name. That's how it works. We don't always think about what does this name actually mean? So I just, you know, thought I'd have a little fun and hopped on the internet and searched around and just, I just searched, what does my name mean? And the first website that came up seemed pretty reliable. It was just names.org. Like, all right, seem, seems good. So I you know, went to names.org. I typed in my name, and I said, all right, let, let's see what they, what they say. And so names.org, they compile information from different countries, and they say, well, according to this source in this country and this country and this person, here's what the name means. So my name, so I t- you know, typed in Justin, and the list was you know, justice, protector, righteous, defender, like things like that. Like, all right, that that makes you feel good. Those are some good descriptions. And most everybody said, you know, the consensus is this name probably started with with Justin Martyr, who was a defender of truth and the Christian faith and and died for what he believed in and was a great writer and preacher. It's like, all right, that's that's good. That works. But then I, I, you know, I started to think to myself, okay, uh, I wonder what are some names where maybe the meaning isn't so great. Like, what are some of those? So I started to search around, like, what are the worst names you could give your kid? What are the lamest names out there? And I found a list. There's someone on the internet put together a list of, like, 75 of the worst names you could get your son or daughter. So I just picked a few of them. I'm not going to share them all, just a few. So if you're a fan of uh, the show Gilmore Girls, yeah, you probably know there's a character, uh, Lorelai. Her name was at the top of the list. And you might think, well, that's, you know, that's a nice, pretty name. But they said, you should think again, because it comes from a German word meaning ambush cliff. So the girl's name, Lorelai, means she who's singing lures men to destruction. So you may want to, you know, double think if you're like, oh, Lorelai's a pretty name. Uh, Molly's another really common one, but Molly actually means bitter. 
Uh, I don't know. I, you know, I don't know any Calvins, but uh, Calvin means a bald. Which, as soon as I read that, I started thinking, you know, when I think of the name Calvin, I just imagine a bald person. I don't know why that is. Uh, and it, let's just let's just say you really love Campbellsville, and so you want to name like a kid after Campbellsville and name a kid Campbell. You might want to think again because Campbell means crooked mouth, like somebody who's a liar. You can't trust what they say, or they just don't look very good. So you probably don't want to pick that name either. And there's a lot of others. A lot of them, I'm like, I don't think anyone in America ever uses that name. So I just kind of skip through a lot of them. But we don't always think of the meaning of a name. We're just like, well, that sounds like a cool name. It's a pretty name. Well, you know, I knew somebody with that name who I really respect, so we'll, we'll use that name. But names in the Bible have a lot of meaning and power to them. And so that's why Isaiah uses these names to talk about Jesus. So once we get to Isaiah chapter 9, we kind of need to understand why Isaiah says what he says and who he's talking to. So Isaiah is a prophet speaking to the nation of Israel, but he's specifically talking to the city of Jerusalem. And he's warning them that if they don't repent of the way they've been living, soon God is going to use other nations and conquer them to punish them. And so when Isaiah begins his ministry, the world's superpower at the time is the nation of Assyria. And so Isaiah begins to warn Israel that if you don't change, Assyria is going to come, they're going to destroy your cities, they're going to capture you, they're going to carry you away to their, their country. And in fact, that happens. About halfway through the book of Isaiah, the city of Jerusalem is destroyed. And Isaiah has been warning them of that. But then Isaiah also warns them that after Assyria will come another nation that's even more dangerous than them. The nation of Babylon is going to come. They're going to conquer Assyria. They'll become the next superpower, and they will come in and conquer you. And they'll take you away to their cities. They'll make you change your name, speak a different language. And so he warns them about that. So the first six chapters of Isaiah are that basic warning from God that Israel, you need to change. And then in chapter 7 through 12, Isaiah is warning the king of Jerusalem, King Ahaz, that he needs to lead Israel in a different sort of way. Because King Ahaz is from David's family, and King David was called a man after God's own heart. He was a good king, he was righteous, even though he made some mistakes. But Ahaz is nothing like David. He's wicked, he's evil, he doesn't follow the Lord. And so Isaiah tells him, look, if you don't change Ahaz, God is going to take the throne from you and give it to somebody else. And then Isaiah begins to talk about this new king that's going to come and take the throne from Ahaz. And he says, you're going to call this man Emmanuel, God with us. Isaiah begins to talk about how where Ahaz, where you have failed to lead the people and be a good king, this person will always be a good king. He will never let his people down. And he says, this king will establish a kingdom that will never end. And unlike Israel that continues to be unfaithful and let God down, this new kingdom will never let God down. He says, Ahaz, someday you will lose your throne to this new king that's coming. And Israel is excited for this person to arrive because they want a good king. They want their nation to last forever. So imagine, I mean, imagine if somebody showed up to us and described to us who is going to win the next presidential election. And they're like, hey, the next person who's going to win, they're like going to be normal. Like, they're going to be wise, they're going to be sane, they're going to be down to earth, they're going to, like, work with everybody, they're not going to pick one side, like, they're just going to be a, just, just a good person you can trust, they're actually going to be kind of, like, moral, like, that's who we're going to get. You'd be like, 
oh, what a relief. Like, every year we're voting between crazy and crazier. Like, good, we're going to have one person we can, we can like. Well, that's how Israel felt when they heard this. Like, oh, good. You mean we're going to finally have, like, a good king, and we're not going to keep getting conquered by other nations? That's awesome. When's he coming? And it's going to be a while. And so that's where Isaiah 9 comes in, where Isaiah describes who this king will be like. And so that first title, that first little part of the nickname is Wonderful Counselor. Now, depending on your Bible translation, some translations, they go wonderful, comma, counselor. You could translate it that way. But the traditional way is to think that's like one part of the phrase. And really, it's one whole run-on sentence in Hebrew of who Jesus is going to be like. But we're just going to kind of, over the next four weeks, look at these four traditional kind of names, titles for Jesus, and what they mean. So as we look at Wonderful Counselor, we kind of got to just understand there's those, those two parts, Wonderful and Counselor. And for a lot of us, when we look at the word wonderful, we probably think of something that's, that's well, good. It's amazing. But actually, that Hebrew word that Isaiah picks to describe Jesus as wonderful is the same word used in the Old Testament for miracles. So, for example, right after God parts the Red Sea to save the Israelites from Egypt, the Israelites call that event wonderful. That's how they describe it. So it's not just he's like a good counselor. He's a miraculous counselor. He's a powerful counselor. That's what they describe him as. And then there's that word counselor. And for most of us, maybe when you think of counselor, you just think of like somebody who's got some, you know, some good advice or something. But unless, you know, my guess is unless you've actually like gone into a counselor's office and sat and talked with somebody through an issue, you probably don't know just how deep that word counselor can go. Because for a lot of us, we, we all have situations where we just, we just need some advice. So where do you go when you need advice? Maybe you have a particular person that you think of that you call or you text when you need advice. Or maybe, you know, this is what I often do and probably a lot of people do is when you have a problem, you just pull out your phone and you go to Google and you start typing in whatever your question is, whatever your problem is. And you're like, how do I do this? Or should I do and, and you find articles, you find videos, you find blog posts, you find all kinds of information to help you try to make some kind of a decision. Now, during, uh, especially during COVID, one of the YouTube channels that rapidly kind of just came on the scene and got really, really popular was called Dad, How Do I? And it's a YouTube video of this, just a, just a normal dad making videos, showing people how to do things that dads normally teach their kids. So it's like, Dad, how do I? shave my face. Dad, how do I tie a tie? Dad, how do I check the oil in my car? Like just lessons like that. And he made all of these videos. Now, normally, if you want to not have a bad day, you stay away from the internet's uh, comment section. Like you just do not go there because you're going to see the worst of humanity in the comment section. But if you go to the comment section for Dad, how do I, you'll probably like cry and feel like really good inside because he actually doesn't have all these negative comments. He has all these people thanking him. And you'll even find some comments of people who they'll say things like, my dad died when I was young. Thank you so much for teaching me things that no one ever taught me how to do. People will write, you know, I had a dad who ignored me my whole life. He never talks to me. Thank you for like encouraging me and making these videos. We need more people like you. There's actually a group on the internet that's kind of formed called Protect This Dad. 
And what they do is whenever somebody like an internet troll gets on there and puts in a bad comment, they will flood the comment section with positive words and bury that comment and like tear that person down. Hey, hey, you don't come around here and tell this man, you know, all these bad things. He's great. He's a treasure. We got to protect him. So that's what people do. All because one dad just thought, well, I'll just help, like, be a dad. That's what he's doing. And sometimes our problems, that's what we need. We just need, like, a how-to video. How do I do this? I don't know how to do it. I need a lesson. But we all have problems where a how-to video ain't going to cut it. Right? Like, what do you do with a broken heart? What do you do with grief? What do you do when your emotions are overwhelming? What do you do when you feel like you're, you're stuck in a pattern of behavior and you can't change it? You need more than just a little internet article. You probably need an actual counselor. And let me just say that Christian counseling, super, super important. Because we all have mental health. Just like we have health in other areas of our body, we all have mental health. We usually just don't like talk about it or act like, well, the only people who have mental health have like a serious problem. No, we all have mental health. And just like how sometimes you need your doctor to do some, some different stuff because your body's not doing well, the same can be true for mental health. There are seasons we go through where you just need somebody to just kind of help walk you through it, to help you process, to help you understand. And that's what a good Christian counselor can do. They can kind of help walk with you through a challenge, through a problem, and help you figure out what's going on and help you understand, okay, how do you live faithfully to Jesus in the midst of this situation? Whether it's some difficult circumstances that have happened or you're feeling things or you're thinking things and you don't know what to do about it, they can help you. Now, a good counselor, there are some things they, they will do. One of the things a really good counselor will do is they will help to bring perspective. You'll come in with a problem, with a situation, with a challenge, and they'll kind of help you see the bigger picture. They'll ask you questions. They'll figure out, okay, well, what about, have you thought of it from this way? Or what do you think that's like if you were over here? Or what do you think that sounds like to this other person in your life? And they kind of help open your perspective to maybe help you see that the world isn't really falling apart. It feels like it to you, but let's just back up. It's not. Or they'll help you understand, like sometimes they'll redefine, which you, you might say, hey, I'm just trying to love this person. And they say, well, I think you're actually enabling them, not loving them. You're like, wait, what? And they kind of they pull you back. Or you might think, hey, you know, that's, I, just, I just try to be real with people. And they say, well, maybe you're just kind of being a jerk. Like maybe that's not the right way to behave. Maybe we need to, you need to rethink your perspective there a little bit. So they'll help you work through that. We're like, man, this person treats me this way, and they'll say, okay, let's back up. Let's think why that, let's, let's see what we can do there. A good counselor can also, they can be patient because they're going to listen to you, and they're going to make sure you know they listen to you and they hear what you're saying. They're going to understand where you're coming from and make sure you know that. And then they can begin to help move you in the right direction. And a good counselor can also help provide you with a plan. Because sometimes you're just like, I'm overwhelmed, I don't know what to do, and so they'll help put together a plan. Like, okay, what if we try this? Or what if you try journaling? Or what if you try, let's put together a game plan for what you can do. And there have been seasons in my life where I've had to walk with a counselor and they've helped me do those things. Like, hey, you're having a hard time right now, you can't quite see the end, let me help you, put, let's get a plan together so you know what to do. And it's very helpful. And I do that for a season and the situation changes or I get through it and I can take a break. And I know that in the future, there will be seasons where I'll also need some counseling again to get some help. So a good Christian counselor is really helpful. But at some level, we all need the wonderful counselor. 
Because even the best human counselor, at some point, there are some limits, right? They can't make you change. They can't make certain things happen. And sometimes the situation just, it doesn't go away. It doesn't get better. They can help you learn how to deal with it, how to think about it, how to manage it differently, how to approach it in a new way. But sometimes you need the wonderful counselor. Now here's the deal. Sometimes Jesus miraculously heals us of the problems in our life, but not always. Sometimes, in God's wisdom, the way he decides to handle something is, you know, you have cancer, and one day you go back to the doctor, and they do tests, and they do scans, and they say, the cancer's gone, we don't know why, we can't find it, it's not there. Or you struggle with depression for years and years, and you try everything you can, and then one day, it's just gone, it's just over, and you don't know how, or you don't know why that happened. There are stories of people who behaved one, one way, and the next, their whole behavior changed, and they can't explain it, they don't know how it worked, it just did. Sometimes God works that way, and sometimes he doesn't. Like the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians has a thorn in the flesh, and he says, I prayed, I prayed, I prayed, and God never took it away. But that's okay. And so sometimes God works those miracles, but sometimes, no, we still have to face these problems every single day. And that's when we need the wonderful counselor. Because Jesus is the one who can give us eternal perspective. He's the one who can give us everlasting patience. He's the one who can provide a perfect plan to help us know what to do. So I want to go back to Zacchaeus for a little bit, because I think that's just one story where we can see Jesus being the wonderful counselor in his ministry. And there's many others, but that story comes out of Luke's gospel. And at the start of Luke's gospel, this is what he says about Jesus. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. So in other words, when Jesus was growing up, he grew into this this wisdom and this power that he needed to be the wonderful counselor. God provided him with what he needed to live out God's wisdom in the world. Romans 11, 33 and 34 says this, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? See, sometimes we think we're in the position to tell God what he should do. And really, we're not in that position at all. God tells us what to do. He helps us see what the way forward is. And that's what Jesus does. And that's what he does with Zacchaeus. Now, we don't get the whole interaction, right? We don't know exactly what is it that made Zacchaeus change. Was it just seeing Jesus? Or it could be that Luke sort of condensed the story for us and he cut out the whole dinnertime conversation, right? And even John tells us there's so many more things that Jesus did, there's not enough books to tell you all about it. Sometimes I just wish we could be a fly on the wall for those dinnertime conversations with Jesus. Because I wonder what he said to Zacchaeus. I wonder what it is he saw in Zacchaeus and how he helped him see how he could live a different kind of life. You know, and sometimes it's hard to know what God's plan is or what what path he has for us, because that takes wisdom. And wisdom's situational, wisdom's hard to always know what to do with. And so that's why in January, we're going to do a sermon series in the book of Proverbs. And we're going to look at God's wisdom in several different topics to understand even more of how Jesus kind of lived this out in his ministry and how we can do that too. Because there's something that Jesus said to Zacchaeus that helped him realize, man, I've got to change. I've got to live differently. Because we all face challenges in life 
And we've all done things we're not proud of, right? We've all done things we wish we wouldn't have done. Maybe it's, you know, you disobey your parents or you hit your siblings and then you wish you could take it back. You wish you could rewind the clock and not do that. Or, you know, you ignored your spouse once and then you suddenly felt really guilty that you were so selfish. You know, you lost your temper at work and then when you calm down, you feel bad that you chewed somebody out like you did, right? Or somebody, you know, a friend at school gets something that you really wish you had and then you just feel so jealous, jealous and it eats you up inside that, well, they got that and I didn't and... We all have those moments where we go, ah, I, wish, I wish I hadn't done that. I wish I would have acted differently or thought differently. And that's just why we need the wonderful counselor. Because we need somebody to help us with those moments. You know, and it might not be uh, popular or even politically correct to talk about sin anymore. Because all the things I just listed, those are sins that we need forgiveness from. But a lot of times we might just take those and say, oh, no, 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 that, that was just like a mistake. Like, oops, I'm sorry I did that. I'll learn from it. I'll do better. But it's just a mistake. It wasn't like a sin. We'll say that. Or we'll say things like, well, that's just the way I am. That's just, you just got to deal with it. That, that's just me. That's, you know, whatever. But here's the problem with, with that. Just kind of go, well, that's just the way I am. You just need to be more patient or you need to deal with me differently or whatever. The problem with that is you're admitting that the hand you were dealt in life is the hand you're trapped with forever. That you can't change. You can't behave differently. This is, this is just the way you are. Sorry. Tough luck. You're stuck that way. But Jesus as the wonderful counselor means there's hope beyond the hand you've been dealt in life. Jesus can actually trade cards with you and say, hey, I, kn- I know that's your situation, but it can change. It can be different. And that's the hope that he gives us. Because even if everything doesn't get better while we're here on earth, even if everything doesn't work out, we know that it will eventually because we know how the story ends. So there's a professor at UC San Diego several years ago that did a study. His name is Nicholas Christianfeld, and he wanted to figure out, do spoilers really ruin the story? Right? So you've probably like, when a major movie comes out or a TV show, you're like, hey, don't, don't tell me how it ends. Don't tell me. I'm going to go see it. I, w- I want to see it myself. But he wanted to see, okay, does a spoiler, does it like really ruin the story? So he got together a couple groups of people and gave them the same short stories. The first group, he just had them read the stories and then rate how much they enjoyed each of those stories. The second group, same stories, but each story had a little introduction that accidentally gave away the ending of the story. So people would read the little introduction, which would ruin this, give it away, and then they would read the story. And then he had group two do the same thing. Rate on a scale how much you enjoyed the story. And group two rated every single story higher than group one. And he thought that was strange. Like, they knew how it ended, but they liked the stories more than the first group. And every time he did this, across different genres, different kinds of stories, same thing. doesn't matter what you use. Comedy, murder mystery, drama, sci-fi. If the people know the ending, they like it way more. And he even did it a different way. He did the same experiment, except this time he stopped everybody in the middle of the story and then asked, okay, how do you like it right now? You're in the middle. So the group that doesn't know the ending, the group that does know the ending, and again, the group that knew the ending enjoyed the story more, even in the middle. And he just thought that was incredible. And as he was thinking about this, he said, he's like, I think it's because when you know how the story ends, you can put the whole thing in perspective. You know how all the details fit together to get to the end. You're not kind of lost in the middle. 
And I bet you've experienced that if you've ever read a book more than once or watched a movie more than once, is you've probably had a moment where you're watching the movie and you go, huh, I didn't notice that last time. My guess is, it's not that you didn't notice it, it's you didn't know how that fit in the story the same way. And then you see the ending, right? Like you watch Inception and you get to the ending and then you go back and you go, huh, wait a minute. You know, you watch the end of a movie and you go back through and you go, huh, I didn't realize how that fit into the whole story. That moment, that scene, that line becomes so much more powerful. And that's what God did in the Old Testament. He had Isaiah give them a spoiler warning. He told them exactly, here's, here's this person's going to come, this is exactly what he's going to be like, this is exactly the way he's going to act. And the reason God did that was to give them hope. And the reason God told us the ending is to give us hope. I would put it this way. Hope is knowing there's light at the end of the tunnel, so you'll keep going. Because if you know how the story ends, you're willing to put, put up with whatever bad stuff happens in the middle. You'll walk through a dark tunnel if you can see there's a light at the end of it. You'll just keep going. You'll keep fighting. You'll keep pushing. Because you know how it turns out. And that's what Isaiah gave Israel. Say, hey, look, Assyria's going to take you away, Babylon's going to take you away, but it's going to get better because your real king is coming. And he says the same thing to us. He says, here's your king. Here's your king, Jesus. And then Jesus tells us how it ends. He says, when this is all said and done, in the end, we win. In the end, I'm going to defeat evil and sin and darkness. I'm going to defeat death. I'm going to defeat Satan. And I'm going to set you free. So no matter what happens, we have hope that the end of our story is going to be so much better than the beginning and even the middle because of what Jesus does. And for those of us who choose to follow Jesus, what that means for us is all of those sins, they're forgiven. And it means we have this wonderful counselor that we can go to, that we can talk to, that gives us patience, that gives us perspective. He reminds us, hey, I know what you're going through, but let me remind you how it ends. You can get through this. I'm right there with you. Because over and over in the Gospels, Jesus tells his followers, I'm not going to leave you. You may not see me for a while, but I haven't left you. I'm still here. And in the end, we win. You can do it. And so the wonderful counselor means we have hope. We have hope. Let's pray. Lord, I am so thankful you, for a little while, gave up your place in heaven and came down here to earth to show us how to live, to save us from ourselves, to save us from sin, and to be that wise counselor for us, a wonderful counselor who helps guide us in the way we should go. And Father, I ask that you would help each and every one of us with whatever it is we're facing, whatever challenges we're going through, that you would provide us with your wisdom and your grace and your perspective on where we're going. And Holy Spirit, I do pray that you would give us moments where we can be honest with others and receive help and encouragement and comfort that we need um, from those that you've, you've gifted, who can give good advice and be good counselors and others who can walk alongside us in difficult times. So thank you, Jesus, for going to the cross and dying 
for our sins. It's in your name I pray. Amen. So now we're going to go into a time of communion. And then after Rick leads us in communion, I'm going to make my way over here to our parlor, this doorway that's on my right, your left. And after communion, if you um, don't follow Jesus yet, if you'd like to know, hey, what, what might it look like? What might be my next steps to follow Jesus? I'll be back there and you can come talk with me about that. And if you're watching online, same for you. You can send us an email, uh, give us a phone call, send us a Facebook message, and we'd love to talk with you about taking your next steps in following Jesus. So let's take communion.